So let's go to God in prayer this morning before we dig into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to stand here before God's people. Father, thank you so much that whether we are in Puerto Rico or here in Limerick, Pennsylvania, Father, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ because of the precious blood of Christ, because of the salvation that you have freely offered to each one of us and adopted us into your family. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you, Father, for the guidance it gives, for the encouragement, for the challenge. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit which guides us into all truth. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bible, if you would, with me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. We'll be starting there and then getting into Exodus chapter 14. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about the number one. Because that was the number of people that came to church on December 29th, 2019. The previous Sunday, there were actually 20 people. And four weeks before that, on November 24, 2019, when Hope Bible Church was started there in Puerto Rico, it was born with 15 of us in attendance. While we depend wholeheartedly on God and His Spirit to move in people's lives, strategy has a big part in uh, the way that we as church planters try to start churches. And and strategy would tell you not to start a church plant around the holidays. And yet that's exactly what happened by default. You see, Elizabeth and I, we had been uh, trying to revitalize a church which had been without a pastor for 11 years there in Puerto Rico. But after eight months, by God's divine direction in our lives, God closed that door uh, with that church right before Thanksgiving. However, there was a group of believers that we had invited over those past eight months to come to the church, and they had been attending the church, and when we uh, let them know that we were no longer going to be at that church, they decided that they didn't want to stay at that church either. And so this fresh group of really spiritually young and uh, really teachable believers, they asked us where we were going to meet that coming Sunday. And so all of a sudden, we had one week to uh, come up with a location and uh, praise God that it happened and he provided a place for us to rent. But within one week, Hope Bible Church was planted. Well, fast forward five weeks. And there was only one person, as I mentioned earlier, who was able to make it to church that Sunday. Now, we were kind of used to small groups because when we were there serving in Sweden, we had a small church that met in our home there. And so whether God would ask us to minister and prepare for hundreds of people or whether it was just to a few people, we would always want to try to be faithful to that. Now, fast forward from when there was just one person who came to Hope Bible Church, and only 14 months later, on March 7th, a few months later, uh, I'm sorry, a few months ago, uh, when we were able to move to our new building and had a dedication service, there was a record 41 people in attendance. Now, the question is, how does that happen? That happens because God is at work in the hearts and lives of his people to save them out of a life of sin and destiny of eternal damnation, to gather a local body of believers who will love him passionately and each other sacrificially, to give them a mission and a purpose to be his light in surrounding darkness, to move them where he wants them to go. 
And so that's what we see here happening in our familiar story of the Israelites being led out of Egypt by Moses in Exodus chapters 13 and 14. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is that God leads us. I want us to first notice God's leading. When God works, it isn't always in a straight line. Exodus chapter 13 verse 17 says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. I don't have a map of the Middle East here on the screen or with me here this morning uh, and what it was like there in Egypt in the days of Moses. Uh, So you're just going to have to use your imagination. Now, young people, this is how it was in the days before we had television and smartphones and all those kind of things, right? All right? So um, my arm here and my hand and my two fingers here is going to represent the Red Sea, all right? And so the Red Sea was on the eastern side of Egypt, and the Israelites had left Egypt um, from the northwest part of the Red Sea, which, so I'm trying to do this backwards. I'm not very good with this, but I'm trying to do it from your perspective, all right? So here are the Israelites over here. And uh, the most direct route for them to go to the promised land when God freed them would have been to go straight across and then veer slightly north, what would have been uh, northeast into the promised land of Canaan. Now, most Bible maps will show you that uh, there's a couple of different possible locations for, most, for Mount Sinai, but one of them, it would have been, uh, the most likely one, they say, would have been right here in the bottom of the V of the Red Sea Peninsula. And so God, as you understand the story, did not lead the Israelites straight across in the most direct route. Instead, he led them south and then across the Red Sea and then down and then up and then, you know, you follow their 40 years of wilderness wandering and it's all over the place until they finally get to uh, the promised land. And so, what we find here is that God did not lead lead his people into the most direct, straightest line where he wanted them to end up. He wanted them to take the indirect route, the way that was more difficult, the path that took longer and certainly had more obstacles. In the last half of verse 17, we find out why God led them the way he did. For God said that the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so God was protecting them for the one thing that he knew uh, that they weren't prepared for so he could bring them into other kinds of experiences and not always pleasant or necessarily better experiences. God knew that these experiences that he led them into or allowed into their lives was exactly what they needed to learn more about God's character and as well as grow in their own character. And so God explains, at least for us as future readers of his holy word, why he led the Israelites in this indirect way. Isn't it wonderful when God reveals to you the whys to go along with the what? But many of us know from our own personal experiences that that doesn't always happen, does it? That God doesn't always explain his every intention when we want to know right there at that immediate time. You know, if God, would, if God knew that he was going to have us start an English-speaking church there in Puerto Rico, wouldn't it have made more sense to send us directly there in 2006 when God called us to the mission field? Why send us first to Sweden for 10 years, which was completely opposite culture and climate and language and religious values of Puerto Rico? 
Wouldn't it have made more sense to send us directly to Puerto Rico? And when we did move to Puerto Rico, why did God put us in a Spanish-speaking church where God, when God wanted us to start, obviously, an English-speaking church? But here's the thing about God's leading. When God works, it isn't always in a straight line. There are destination points along the windy road of God's will for us that are designed to protect us and grow us and mature us and shape us more into the image of Jesus Christ. If the Israelites had kept going on that straight path to the promised land, they would have missed out on Mount Sinai where they received God's laws. As the Apostle Paul teaches us in the New Testament books of Galatians and Romans, we know that the law was designed to show sinners the need for a Savior. And so the detours that God allows in our lives, they have great purpose and they have great meaning. We had every intention of eventually starting a Spanish-speaking church. So for the first years, we, first three years, we moved to Puerto Rico. We were working with another missionary couple who helped us to integrate into the uh, new culture there, and they helped us uh, with that. And we were working with our Spanish-speaking church, and we were, began working with a bilingual Puerto Ricans right away, and, and many needed to hear the gospel. There are many that needed to be discipled, and so we got involved as a family with all kinds of different ministries, with uh, the deaf ministry, music, um, preaching, marriage counseling. We even started a young families group that they didn't have at the church there, and uh, my son and I were involved in a basketball outreach ministry that we had, and so then, as many of you are familiar with, along came Hurricane Maria, and our ministry took a detour. And for the next year, we were helping the land and the people recover from that Category 5 hurricane. And the aftermath was incredibly debilitating for the entire island. And we praised God that he had planted our family there for our purpose to suffer with the Puerto Ricans in the aftermath of the hurricanes. We were uh, four months without electricity, while some parts of the island actually went a year and a half without power. And we couldn't call anyone, uh, and so uh, because you know all the power was out and everything, and all the antennas were down, and and so we ended up having to go from house to house uh, to uh, all the church members to make sure that they were okay. And we spent the first few months just clearing out debris and uh, just helping people get out their front doors and all this kind of stuff. And it was it got really complicated because there was a lack of gasoline on the island, and and so uh, it affected chainsaws, cars, generators, and so. Sometimes we'd have to wait up to 10 hours in line just to get to the front of the line to get the gas station to get like five gallons of gas. And more often than not, they were out of gas by the time we got there. And so these were the kind of things that we were struggling with. And it was in the midst of endless nights of physical darkness that there came opportunities to penetrate the spiritual darkness with the gospel. Churches and supporters and Christians from the states sent much-needed supplies. And so our house and our church was turned basically into like a distribution center. And for months, we would load our vehicles and drive up into the mountainous areas of Puerto Rico where they had a much harder time in those remote villages to get the supplies that they needed to survive, and so we were giving out the free water and gasoline for their generators, uh, flashlights, lanterns, batteries, whatever it was that we could find that would be a blessing, and of course, uh, the Word of God as well, putting that into their hands. And so God opened up opportunities for us to teach the Bible with uh, flashlights and lanterns, and, and Puerto Ricans turned from spiritual darkness 
to spiritual light. And uh, so God gave us so many wonderful opportunities to present the gospel through this, and some people indeed gave their life to Christ as a result. And so we learn from the darkest times in the aftermath of the hurricane that God's light is in every bend of the path that God takes us on. Even though from a distance the curve ahead might look gloomy and dark and not at all where we want to go, there's purpose and meaning for why God allows bends in the road of life. So that's the thing about God's leading. When God works, it isn't always in a straight line. I want you to notice, secondly, God's provision. That when God works, it is often in unexpected ways. We're going to skip down to verse 21 here of Exodus 13. And we read that when the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. When was the last time when you asked God for direction in your life and he provided for you a pillar of cloud to lead you? And my guess is you're going to say never, right? Uh, you might think that the cloud there in front of you is moving, but you, know, you realize, oh, that's just the wind. You know, it's not actually God directing you in some special way. When was the last time that you asked God to protect you and he provided a pillar of fire? And again, my guess is that that has never happened to you. And so what happened in the story was very unexpected. It wasn't normal. It wasn't the usual way that God operates. Whether it be using Esther through a beauty contest, or David to kill the giant with a slingshot, or, or ravens to bring food to his servant Elijah, or even Jesus being born of a virgin. What we find over and over again in the scriptures is that God often works in unexpected ways. And we found that to be true for us when we were starting a new church. You know, usually church planters, we want to form some sort of nucleus of committed Christians who are zealous for the gospel and the establishment of a new church. And these are the sort of Christians who are usually spiritual leaders and they might be gifted and and who catch the vision with you for starting a new church. And sometimes that springs up out of a large church that then desire to plant a daughter church. But even as missionaries, our mission board would encourage missionaries really to start a new church, if you can, with other co-workers, with a team uh, that is ready to start the church. And so, when we started Hope Bible Church, it was interesting to see how God worked in unexpected ways, in that the group that we started with was mostly new believers or immature believers. We didn't have co-workers, and remember that because this church started in just one week, we didn't really have time to recruit the co-workers either. And so for the first year, it was Elizabeth and I pretty much doing everything. And uh, it, it was a very up and down year, to be honest with you. Uh, of course, it didn't help that the coronavirus kept all the churches in Puerto Rico from meeting for uh, a few months. Uh, ju- and it was, it was just after three months uh, after the church was born. And so can you imagine having a three-month-old baby? And uh, the doctors tell you that you won't be able to be in the same room with it. All right? You're just going to have to take care of it through video and everything. And that was kind of what it was like for us with this church plant. You know, it was born, uh, we had been able to take care of it uh, for three months, and all of a sudden we were told, oh, now we're going to go to video and everything. And so, and yet despite all that, God worked. And we started seeing the visible fruit of God working. And obviously God had been working for months and even years before that to prepare for this situation. But God was working. And when the church was one year old, at the end of November, God brought three solid couples to the church. We met Dave and Heather uh, through a public Facebook group. We met uh, 
uh, Daryl and Vita at a pizzeria where we invited them to church. And then we, Caesar and Mickey found us through our website. And so they all became a part of our servant leadership team. So this isn't, again, like I said, the usual way that you would uh, see God provide for a church planting leadership team. But when God works, it is often in unexpected ways. And thanks to these new, three new faithful couples being committed to the church, all of a sudden, we went from wondering if anyone would show up for church to wondering if five or six might show up to all of a sudden we started having 10 to 15 every Sunday. And now, praise God, we have an average of 20 to 25 every Sunday. And so this church started in an unexpected way. But that is often how God works. I want you to notice third, that, uh, I want you to notice for third God's sovereignty. When God works, it isn't an accident. We read here in the beginning of chapter 14, in verse 1, that the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihirath, between Migdaldo and the sea, and in front of Baal-Sephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I want to pause right there, because I want you to notice in those verses that we just read that everything there is in the future tense. You shall encamp. Pharaoh will say, I will harden. He will pursue. I will get glory. Egyptians shall know. And then verse 4 there, it continues and it says, and they did so. It's a short but significant phrase because it tells us that what God had predicted happened just as he said. And then if we were to read through verses 5 through 9, it gives us a step-by-step account of God's sovereign work and display as the events unfolded exactly as God had predicted and designed. In fact, verse 8 says, And the Lord hardened the heart. In other words, God sovereignly worked to accomplish his will. When God works, it is no accident. God said in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. You know, when the church plant first started, as you um, well, hopefully, maybe get to see later in a video report if we can get that working, uh, we rented this really narrow hallway that was part of an abandoned uh, building and we could only put like four or five seats across. And then you add to that that with the coronavirus rules, we had to put all the seats six, uh, all the rows of seats six feet apart. It was getting to the point where uh, we, Elizabeth and I realized we needed to start praying about finding a larger uh, place to meet. And at that time, we were paying $800 a month to rent th- that small hall and it was leaking quite badly. The average monthly offerings that first year at Hope Bible Church was $133 per month. And so despite Elizabeth and I covering uh, most of that rent and operating costs ourselves that first year, we prayed about it and we really believed that God wanted us to stretch the budget to look for another place to rent or purchase where we could budget a payment of $1,000 a month. But uh, what ended up happening is as we were looking for properties, uh, all we could find was properties that were like $5,000 a month. That was way out of our budget. Or maybe we could even buy properties that were completely uh, just in utter ruin and they wanted like a half million dollars for it. In fact, one of the places that we even uh, looked at had uh, like literally a garden of weeds just growing out of the tile floor and everything. But the point is this was all out of our budget. And then eventually we were able to find a property that was only $150,000 to buy and yet that was still out of our budget. 
And then uh, there was a realtor uh, that uh, said that the property that we were able to uh, find there, that one that was 150000 that was already under contract to be sold. And so God worked sovereignly in that situation so that the uh, owner of the property, who really is the CEO of like just many corporations and everything, and so he's got a lot of layers and people that, that messages have to get through to get to him. He calls me out of the blue like uh, just a week later and says, I don't know how I got your message, but uh, it came to me and I hear that you're interested in buying the property. And so, of course, we know that that was God's sovereignty. And the owner agreed to then eventually sells that property for $125,000. Finally, it was an amount within our budget. And God is working. But the question is, how are we going to get that loan for that? And I have to admit, I had my doubts. But God sovereignly had it so that right before this was all happening, through a mutual Christian friend I met online, there was a missionary with Youth for Christ who lives on the other side of Puerto Rico that I met. And he was telling me this amazing testimony about how God had opened up an opportunity for them to buy an old campsite that was right on the ocean and had a lot of acres with a couple of buildings, a basketball court, and so on. And it was just absolutely idea for their ministry of reaching the youth on that side of the island. But it cost something like $650,000 and they only had two weeks to raise it. But in a stunning testimony, our amazing God provided those funds and they were able to purchase that property. So now fast forward a couple months and I've learned that we need 125000 to buy this property for a church plan. So I prayed to God and I just kindly reminded him that uh, just in case he had forgotten that um, he had just provided over half a million dollars from this missionary brother of mine on the other side of the island and I'm just asking for 125000 God. Well, God is gracious, isn't he? He heard our prayers, and God sovereignly worked so that we met a Christian in Puerto Rico who offered to give us a loan, but it was a loan that was really complicated and, and involved interest and all this kind of stuff, and, and so we kept praying, and, and God sovereignly provided to our mission board who heard about the situation, and over a 10-year period of time, they agreed that uh, they would give us an interest-free loan, and by the time that we, then we were able to immediately pay off 5000 of that $125,000 loan, and so over a 10-year period, the monthly payment is now exactly $1,000 a month, the exact amount that Elizabeth and I have been praying about. Now, I know at this point, uh, probably the kids are very confused. I've been throwing out numbers left and right and everything. Those of you that are accountants and love these numbers, you're on the edge of your seat, can hardly wait for more numbers and everything. But really and truly, what I'm trying to get at here is that what all of us believers should be getting excited about is hearing about and knowing that God is truly sovereign. That when God works, it isn't an accident. God knew exactly how he was going to provide for a church 50,000 years ago. I want you to notice fourth, God's faithfulness. That when God works, it is God fighting for us despite our failures. In verse 10, we read about how Pharaoh started drawing near and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and, and behold, the Egyptians were marching down on them. And so what do the people of Israel do? They cry out in verse 11 and they complain, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring uh, us out, out of Egypt? out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you, verse 12, in, in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Wow. You talk about a whiny, complaining attitude. And verse 11, 12 is really the first of many times, as you are familiar with the story, that they're going to be whining and complaining all throughout the wilderness. And they're more concerned about their comfort than their relationship with God. The Israelites 
They're frustrated, they're frightened, they're focused on their challenging circumstances rather than on the faithfulness of God. They completely fail God despite God's faithfulness. And yet, I want you to notice something. That our gracious, ever-loving God still responds in verse 14, I will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. If I was God in that situation, I would have said, fine, go back to being slaves. Go back to your miserable lives and see if I've answered one of your prayers again. It's a good thing I'm not God, huh? I don't have much patience. I'm not as likely to be faithful to someone who's faithless. I'm not going to choose to fight for someone who can only see the cup half empty. But thankfully, I'm not God. God is the faithful God who saw and understood their weaknesses and fear and doubt and said, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for the helpless. I will fight for them even when they fail me. I wonder this morning, have you ever seen God's faithfulness even when you failed God? I know that I have many, many, many times. Because there have been many times in my life when I failed God. I've been selfish or unfaithful in the way I manage my time. Or guilty of wrong priorities. Or I judge someone too quickly. Or I could go on all, and I could go on all morning just describing the many times I failed God. But God, in His mercy, keeps fighting for me. He keeps working even though I don't deserve to see God's blessings. One of the ways that I have failed, failed God in the past year was with jealousy. Worry, a lack of trust, not loving a brother in Christ with agape love. I faced a situation in this past year where I felt that a brother in Puerto Rico had wronged me. I was concerned about how his decisions might affect our ministry. And I wrestled with these deep emotions of betrayal and anger and anxiety and pride and an unforgiving heart. And it finally came down to realizing two things. That one, I wasn't trusting God completely. That I wanted to trust God when I felt that somehow I could control the circumstances. And secondly, I realized that I wasn't loving my brother with agape, true agape love. Completely selfless and sacrificial love. And yet, despite my failures, God so faithfully and graciously kept fighting for us. As we saw blessing after blessing, even during that time of me wrestling with my emotions and attitudes. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that we should purposely fail God in order to prove God's faithfulness. Please don't do that. But God does see the genuineness of our struggles, doesn't he? And God will fight for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, notice fifth also, God's glory. When God works, it is always about him and for him. In verse 15, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so we notice in verses 17 and 18 that it doesn't say that Moses will get the glory, or that the Israelites will get the glory, or even the mighty wind and the waves that crushed the Egyptian army will get the glory. No, it is only God who gets the glory. I was marveling with a brother in Christ a couple of weeks ago about how much of the goodness and blessings of God that we've seen over the past nine months there at the church plant. And God providing a church. We've been having visitors every single week. Even uh, uh, this past week, uh, someone called the church phone number and asked about the service and 
how they could visit. And so we've just seen an amazing, high, amazingly high retention rate. And so the church is growing. And you know, this brother in Christ was telling me, you know, Jake, it's you and your wife. You guys just have this likability factor. And people are drawn to you. And I know that he was just trying to compliment us. But I had to immediately point him back to God and remind him to give God the glory. For he is the one that created us and shapes us to be who we are. I think that my friend must have been exaggerating. Or maybe he was just buttering me up because he wanted something. I'm not sure why he would say something that nice. But what's interesting about God's glory is that he always seems to get the most glory when life isn't easy. It was when the Israelites were faced with this potential life and death situation that God's glory in this story shone the brightest. Some of the most amazing testimonies that we've heard and that probably that you've heard is when God gets the glory and it comes from stories of pain and suffering. And Hope Bible Church and the glory that God is rightfully receiving for that came out of a personally painful situation for Elizabeth and I. We had poured our hearts and energy and time into a body of believers at the one church where I was an interim pastor. And for the first six months, they were, it was going great and the church was growing, but the last two months were full of heartaches and tears as people lied to us. There was gossip. They refused to follow biblical principles. And I remember just feeling so much disappointment and frustration and sadness. Elizabeth and I, we cried together and, and asked God to lead us. And out of that pain was birthed, birthed a much healthier church that desires to point all the glory to God. One of the ways that Elizabeth and I are currently trying to seek to glorify God is through the suffering that Elizabeth experiences due to Parkinson's disease. When we learned about her diagnosis in the spring of 2019, it really changed our life in many ways. In one sense, it was, of course, a relief knowing, finally knowing what this pain was that she was experiencing and the symptom, why she was having the symptoms that she was having. But on the other hand, learning that this would just be something she'd have to deal with for the rest of her life and also that it would become progressively worse was really sad for us. And it really changed my perspective on life so much so that uh, I went on a, actually went on a serious diet. Not one of those ones I want to lose weight, but I actually went on a serious diet and I lost 40 pounds. We realized that this could affect how long I might be able to stay in the ministry. We realized that our life is going to become more difficult with each passing year. And this wasn't the way the plan was supposed to work. After we got married, you might remember that we immediately had our children, Hannah, Mariah, and Jedediah. And, but, but we adapted and had the attitude that, well, even though we became parents right away, it's okay because then when they finally leave the house, we become empty nesters, we'll finally be able to go on all these adventures together that we were able to do as a young couple. And so that was the plan. And yet, uh, we know that now because of uh, her uh, Parkinson's, it's put an end to all those plans and she's exhausted uh, from her daily battle so much so that we have to measure her energy and time. And there are times when she has to stay home when I'm out with people, and that has been very hard for both of us because we love to serve God together all these years. But God's grace is And we just hope and pray that God will receive even more glory because of this situation, because life, even when there's suffering, is always about Him and for Him. So when God works, whether it be through suffering or success, let's give God the glory. I want you to notice... Next, God's protection. That when God works, it is God between us and the army. In verse 19, we read that the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved 
from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the Israelites, of course, had no chance against the Egyptian army with all the chariots and powerful weapons. But here's the thing about the situation. The, Egyptians, the Egyptian army also stood no chance against Almighty God, who moves between them and their prey. And they know it because otherwise, if it was just a simple cloud, they could have just gone right through it and uh, recaptured the Israelites. But this was no ordinary cloud. In fact, in Psalm 105, verse 39, it indicates that this cloud, cloud was so large that it covered the entire camp of the Israelites. But it wasn't the size that deterred the Egyptian army. It was who was in it and where he was positioned. God was protecting the Israelites by being between them and the Egyptian army. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we face an enemy called Satan. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And the devil wants to see us spiritually fail. And he, can do, he will do all that he can to attack us and make that happen. And even in the midst of seeing God work in tremendous ways these past number of months, we've seen the enemy trying to discourage us. Probably one of the most visible ways, and some of you have already come up to me and asked me, you know, how is the church roof doing? And I can tell you, it's worse than ever before, all right? And so it has been very discouraging. And uh, one of the things that I've learned very quickly is that I am not a general contractor, all right? And somehow all the big decisions have fallen to me, and I ended up hiring uh, uh, the wrong guy. And, and he said he, he made all these promises and he said he was going to do all these things and here we are four months later still doing patchwork and it was getting worse than ever before and so finally we had to uh, let him go and, and we hired another company and they are trying to do it right this time and they completely ripped off all the old material so our concrete roof on the, it has all, with all its cracks and everything is completely exposed there's actually holes this size where the roof is just literally pouring through it and everything and so Elizabeth and I have been praying fervently all week saying God please don't let it rain this week especially on Sunday morning because we're not going to be there to empty all the buckets and, and uh, mop the floors and everything like that but this has been a kind of a source of, of, of we just felt like Satan kind of trying to discourage us and attack uh, even in the midst of this glorious way that God is working and then um, we were wondering what was I going to do for when I was going to be gone these next three Sundays and uh, God uh, just worked and stood between us and the enemy and, and he brought along a couple from Louisiana who does these online Bible studies and they had heard about us coming to the United States for three Sundays and so uh, they said, we're going to fly to Puerto Rico just for that and for those three Sundays so that we can cover for you and everything. And so that was again, God just stand between us and the devil's attacks and everything. And so we just praise God for how when he protects, he just protects us from the fire darts of the devil. Because when God works, he stands between us and the enemy. And then I want you to notice, lastly, God's salvation. Because when God works, it is God rescuing us when we recognize our helplessness. Going back to verse 13, there uh, in uh, chapter 14, we read this. That when Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And then when we go down to uh, verse 21, we read there from 21 to the end of the chapter the incredible ways, the details of how God indeed uh, delivered salvation 
few, the people of Israel. In fact, down in verse 30, it says that, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And then it goes on to describe how the Egyptians saw the, or the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so here were the Egyptians in a helpless situation. They were surrounded by mountains on either side of them and the uncrossable sea in front of them and of course the overpowering enemy behind them. They had nowhere to turn but up and they were forced to look up to God for his salvation. And you know what? That's exactly where God wants each one of us to be at in the moment of our salvation. In the state of complete spiritual helplessness. Realizing that we cannot save ourselves. We are certainly in awe of God's saving power over these many years that God has allowed us to serve him on the foreign mission field. Whether it be in Sweden where we had the privilege of seeing several people come to Christ and now here in Puerto Rico we've had just recently the privilege just a, a couple months ago of seeing an 11 year old girl named Lainey come to Christ there in our church and uh, a few years ago we saw our next door neighbor uh, get saved right after the hurricane and then uh, a few months ago we had the opportunity to see a older couple, a retired couple, gets saved and had the privilege of sitting with them in their uh, living room after a Bible study and holding both of their hands. And first the uh, gentleman went and then the uh, lady went and, and they prayed and asked God to save them. And so we've had the privilege of seeing God work in the hearts and lives of people as they recognize their helplessness and need for God to save them. And I wonder this morning, have you ever been in that kind of complete helpless spiritual situation. You turn to the right and there's a mountain of self-righteousness that you can't climb over, over no matter how moral you try to be. You turn to the left and there is a mountain of religious deeds that you have performed to somehow earn favor with God and you keep trying to climb that mountain but that mountain just seems to get higher and higher. You look in front of you and there's a sea of unforgiven sin and a tremendous burden of guilt that would cause you to drown. You look behind you and there's an army of excuses and procrastination and fear that has frozen you into a state and condition of indecisiveness. And so I hope that today, if you've never looked up and seen the salvation of God in your personal life, that today is a day that it will be said of you that the Lord saved you. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that you have seen in this story of Exodus and in our testimonies of God's work in this new church plant there in Puerto Rico, I hope that you have seen God's leading. When God works, it isn't always in a straight line. Second, God's provision that when God works, it is often in unexpected ways. Third, God's sovereignty that when God works, it isn't an accident. Fourth, God's faithfulness that when God works, it is God fighting for us despite our failures. Fifth, God's glory that, w- that when God works, it is always about Him and for Him. Sixth, God's protection that when God works, it is God standing between us and the enemy. And seventh, God's salvation that when God works, it is God rescuing us when we recognize our helplessness. Father in heaven, thank you for leading, your leading, for your sovereignty for your provisions, for your faithfulness, your protection, your salvation. Thank you that, Father, all this is for your glory. Thank you for your constant work in our lives and even in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.